0: Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast, Episode 73, The Woes of Albert Sidney Johnston. Before proceeding with the podcast today, I wanted to take a moment to apologize for not updating regularly. Unfortunately, I've had a lot of disruption in my life, and I've just had to prioritize and work on the podcast when I can. I hope to get back to a regular schedule soon. But on with the podcast. In the wake of General Grant's victory at Donelson, we should take an opportunity to understand the viewpoint of Albert Sidney Johnston, who just became commander of the Confederate forces in the Tennessee Front. Albert Sidney Johnston belonged to the West Point class of 1826, two years ahead of Jefferson Davis, but he also attended Transylvania University before that in his native state of Kentucky, much like Davis. It seemed somewhere along the line Jefferson Davis developed a lifelong case of hero worship. He would henceforth hold that Johnston was a soldier's soldier. And there was actually much in favor of that judgment. Johnston certainly earned a reputation in battle at an early age. He fought, actually fought, in battle at a relatively early stage in his career as well, in the Black Hawk War as an American soldier. In his case, that distinction is important, and we'll get back to that. But, Fighting in the battle put him in the company of almost none of the figures we've seen thus far, as even Jefferson Davis and Abraham Lincoln only participated on the very periphery of that war. In the aftermath of the war, however, he departed American service after a fashion. Following the tragic loss of his wife, he left for Texas and new opportunities. But Albert Sidney Johnston joined the Texan army in their fight for independence as well and he rose from a private soldier, nominally anyway, to brigadier general. Granted, being one of the only trained and experienced soldiers in the Nasset Nation probably helped. Ironically, he wound up doing very little in that war, as he fell ill until after the key battles took place. But Johnson just hadn't enough of fighting, so he would stand by Texas until the push for annexation and statehood. He then led volunteers from Texas in the Mexican-American War. Afterward, he rejoined the formal service of the Army of the United States. And for a time, he even led the Storied 2nd Cavalry, and then gained leadership of the Department of the Pacific. That put him in a very elite group of officers, although he was no longer young by this time, of course. When the Civil War arrived, he was 57, yet seemingly had more than enough energy to join one more great war. Following the secession of Texas... Johnston chose to go with the state he'd made a new home in. The only problem was that he, at that moment, uh, happened to be stationed in California. In fact, he and his family had moved from San Francisco down to Los Angeles not long before they heard the news. But by May, with the war heating up after Fort Sumter, Johnson made the decision to resign his command, although he didn't exactly do so quietly. In fact, Johnston left in style and with little secrecy. After a hearty farewell dinner, he and a small band of compatriots made their way across the western expanse. The nearest Confederate outposts lay halfway across the west. Yet Johnston, an experienced commander with years of military service, successfully arrived in Confederate-controlled territory in July of 1861. He and his fellows dodged every federal patrol. Had they been caught, they would presumably have become prisoners of war before even joining it. As an aside, the Johnston family stayed behind in California. While crossing the West wasn't exactly what you'd call a casual stroll, entire families did so with increasing frequency in this era. They likely could have departed for Texas had they so wished, especially as neutral Mexico would have allowed a safe, if slower, path. Yet they did not. And so it appears that Johnston never saw his family again. Such are the fortunes of civil war. But soon after, Johnston met with Davis personally. And Jefferson Davis was only too glad to hand a prime military command to his old friend. So in September of 1862, Albert Sidney Johnston arrived to take command in the western theater of the war. And almost immediately had to make some very difficult decisions with far too few resources. These issues weren't limited to the material by any stretch. Remember that Confederate command structure quite literally just came into existence. The basic framework of decision-making, staff work, and supply management at the very least required considerable attention. And so now, we are caught up to the specifics of the strategic problems of late 1861. As we've mentioned several times, Confederate General Albert Sidney Johnston inherited a very tricky situation. General Polk's advance in Kentucky at Columbus became the serious political problem that we've discussed, but militarily the situation actually looked even worse. The question lay in the realm of logistics and strategy, while Columbus did allow Polk to control the river. The town also lay on a spur line of the railroad that ran from Paducah, which Grant swiftly occupied to point south like Memphis. General Grant could therefore potentially cut Polk's command off from the main Confederate battle line that Johnston had established. That full line ran across northern Tennessee and southern Kentucky, following the primary east west rail line. Johnston advanced with his main force to Bowling Green, Kentucky, in order to put up a front against General Buell's command. And as we've seen, the East Tennessee command under Felix Zollicoffer Worked their way towards Mill Springs, now, for reference, Mill Springs itself was of absolutely no importance in this plan, nor did the railroads reach anywhere near there. Rather, the Confederates just wanted to keep the front as far forward as possible, and Johnson had several reasons to do so: first, having as much extra room as possible to retreat in by time would give his command a lot of flexibility. One force could fall back gaining the room for reinforcements to join them, and then retaliate, pushing the Union back. Or alternatively, they might lead this or that army farther than their logistics could support, turning on them when able. But General Albert Sidney Johnson also chose to follow one of the most ancient and hallowed military traditions. In the final analysis, he just bluffed. He acted as aggressively as the situation allowed. Johnson pretended as though he merely had to give the order, and endless waves of furious rebels would sweep aside the entire Federal line. And he was merely laying solid foundations for the bloody work to come in spring. And he did this because Johnson knew very well that his command could hardly form a coherent battle line as was. First, he had far too few soldiers in the field. Each individual wing of his overall command, save one, faced larger Union forces in their immediate front. That lone exception was, again, General Polk at Columbus, and we will return to his thorny situation momentarily. The short version is that, pragmatically speaking, the Confederates could undertake no real offensive without absurd luck, disproportionately skillful leadership, or preferably both. They would form small forces, trying to oppose armies twice their size. On defensive ground, this might work but offensively that was extremely risky and yet at the same time they could not easily abandon certain areas in order to concentrate jefferson davis as president of the confederacy never entirely developed or laid out a full strategic plan but in practice he developed and implemented a cordon defense concept in part due to the nature of the confederacy as more or less a democracy as an aside It's understandable that you may want to quibble over that definition under the circumstances. African Americans were, at the very best, completely disqualified from public or political life when they weren't literally enslaved, as the vast majority were. And, of course, we also have to face the reality of Confederate repression of unionist sentiment. But more or less every corner of the Confederacy had some manner of representation in Richmond, and that representation had consequences for Confederate President Jefferson Davis. Even with absolute military necessity, abandoning any corner of the Confederacy threatened its political integrity. Leaving aside the question of what the average Johnny on the street thought, the thousands of slave owners felt their human property, and the wealth it gave them, under grave threat. True, in many respects, their views of quote-unquote black republicanism were well, largely a fiction that they created, and ironically, abolitionism in reality was the result of their actions, not the impetus. But if they thought that the Confederacy wouldn't, or couldn't, protect their power and station, they wouldn't support it in turn. Moreover, there was that tricky question of what the Johnny on the Street really did think. Secessionists could not openly admit there might be many Union loyalists, but implicitly, they feared that a large number of Unionists did exist. And the voting record of the border states strongly suggested that the Confederacy might not have the staying power it claimed. Besides, the explicit political foundation of the Confederacy was that the slave system made their elites wealthy, wise, united, and unstoppably courageous in battle. With an ideological foundation like that, how could Davis allow his armies to easily stand down from a fight? More to the point, could the myth survive such a retreat? In fact, those feelings were in part why Albert Sidney Johnston did not want General Polk all the way up there at Columbus. Polk had positioned a great deal of manpower and artillery there, precious resources which might well have been better used distributed throughout the Western armies. And he had done so in a manner which used them inefficiently, lengthening the defensive line, but also not positioning them for any offensive purpose. That was not ideal given the extreme resource constraints of the military situation. At that exact moment, Johnston had to decline offers of regiments as he lacked the arms with which to equip them. Indeed, he could not fully arm the men he did have, and lacked horses and wagons to move his armies properly. Though with a little time and good fortune, he might be able to put his command in order. After reviewing the situation, Albert Johnston, pleaded with Richmond for more arms for his soldiers, and also military engineers who might be able to build the kind of defenses he needed to even the odds. But Jefferson Davis, having handed the command to Johnston, denied him anything. He even told Johnston that he must look to his own resources. This did not bode well, given there were hardly any facilities or equipment in the West at all. Modern gunsmithing required special machine tools, more or less all made in the North, given its globally competitive role in machine tooling. Now, while some of these did exist in the Confederacy, they could barely support the armies in the field, and most of what did exist supported the Eastern armies instead of the Western ones. These tools came from the loot of Harper's Ferry, or existed in the form of Richmond's Iron Ironworks. No equivalent facilities existed elsewhere in the entire Confederacy. Again, with considerable time and effort, perhaps Johnston could have built up a military supply organization to feed his front-line armies. But then General Thomas attacked Mill Springs, and shattered the right flank of Johnston's line. This alone was bad enough, for Thomas might have marched into East Tennessee almost unopposed. He didn't for lack of transportation, and because his own superior, General Buell, seemingly lacked the aggressive nature required for offensive campaigning. The Union would indeed have faced immense difficulties supplying an army in East Tennessee. However, they similarly would have caused an immense crisis for the Confederate strategic situation. But whether it was theoretically right or theoretically wrong, in any case, Thomas did not advance. Yet since Thomas didn't march on East Tennessee, his command remained in the field for other uses, for example, assisting his commander in pressuring Johnson's center force. That, at least, was a potential concern for Johnston, since Buell already had more men as it was. But then when General Grant attacked Fort Henry, and the entire war plan in the West required immediate emergency correction, almost overnight. Before Johnston could possibly reinforce the position, he had lost a key defensive site. Worse yet, Union gunboats entered the strategic picture far stronger at that point in the war than anything the Confederacy had afloat or could put into the river, they swept far into Johnston's rear. This was, charitably, a very bad day to be a Confederate general. But General Johnson did have one stroke of good luck, although ironically it would shortly rebound to his great misfortune. Richmond could not spare a single rifle nor a single engineer, but Jefferson Davis wanted to get rid of a nuisance so he packed up General Pierre-Gustave-Tuton Beauregard and sent him off to the west. That resolved the awkward command situation under General Joe Johnston in the east. And besides, Davis personally loathed Beauregard by this point and wanted him as far away as possible. Yet, despite his many quirks and deficiencies of character, Beauregard retained his almost unwavering optimism and the strange habit of giving very good advice. When Beauregard and Johnston talked it over, they could see only one way to repair the situation. Beauregard must go and get General Polk out of his fortress, now more like a prison, at Columbus. Beauregard had the necessary talent and prestige to make this a swift process. In the meantime, Johnston himself would fall back on Nashville. Johnston did not emphatically intend this as a complete rout. Among other things, he gave permission for Beauregard to fortify an island with part of Polk's force, uh, in order to prevent the Union from easily chasing after the retreating forces. He wanted to regroup. And so, four days after the Battle of Fort Henry, Johnson's armies began to retreat southward, leaving Kentucky for the time being. But Johnson did one thing more. He moved every spare man, and he had a few units kept around for just such an occasion, to reinforce Donaldson. Hence, when General Grant marched on the ladder, he discovered the Confederates had more men defending than he had attacking. And as it happened, General Buell let Johnston slip away unhindered, beginning a habit of lackadaisical movements that will ultimately lead to his dismissal in the months to come. This was, in fact, a serious military mistake. Back in Washington, President Lincoln and even the infamously timid George McClellan also noticed that Buell seemingly failed to move when there was absolutely no reason to avoid a fight. Instead, Buell called for a cooperation between himself and Halleck, but did little or nothing to make that cooperative campaign happen. In fact, he had still not even closed the gap between himself and Johnston, having a substantial advantage in nearly every military aspect and failing to use it. Remember also that Thomas's attack on Mill Springs and Grant's at... Fort Henry, showed that the Confederates were vulnerable. At this moment, too, had Johnston thrown all sense to the wind, massed everything he had, and ventured to directly attack Grant right now, it seems that Buell might have simply failed to do much of anything. Grant, for once, would have faced overwhelming numbers, and without a good way to respond except to retreat himself. Johnston did not do this, and thereby earned a certain amount of scorn from historians. Yet in reality, it would have been sheer madness to take such a risk at this stage, and there wasn't time to do it anyway. One of the reasons Johnston did not, and emphatically should not, have taken such a risk was that from his perspective, for Donelson ought to have been fairly secure. His reinforcements arrived and could fend off Grant for some time, giving him the leeway to join General Polk's command into the center force and bring all of that into the fight. But General Beauregard's reputation preceded him, quite literally. The Union command knew that Beauregard had headed out west. What they did not know is that he arrived alone, without a single man under arms. Instead, the Union command believed that Beauregard brought with him his personal army of 15 regiments or so, perhaps 10,000 strong. So when Henry Halleck heard that Grant successfully captured Fort Henry and that Beauregard had arrived, he pulled all the reinforcements available to send down the Cumberland River, in order to match the non-existent ranks led by Beauregard. This was absolutely the correct move regardless, because it thinned the ranks of men of only marginal use, currently carrying out garrison duties and training, and put them in the hands of a fighting general on the front. And because of the intervening Mississippi River, the Confederacy, in the form of General Polk's command, could hardly take any advantage from those thin ranks. They could not easily shift men across the river in response. This gave Grant a substantial advantage in numbers, and it was enough to win at Donelson. Yet still, if properly led, the Confederate position should have held out for a long time. Moreover, as Grant discovered, it became next to impossible to completely hold all of the escape routes on dark winter nights. But once again, Johnson had another run of ill luck. Between them, the utterly inept Floyd and the Manic Pillow ruined the defense of Fort Donelson. And that was an almost irretrievable disaster. The collapse should not have happened, at least not remotely as quickly as it did. But it did happen, and as a result, the loss of Donelson instantly blasted General Johnston's plan to regroup to splinters. First, The loss of the near-entire army at Donaldson removed well over 10,000 soldiers from Johnson's already thin ranks, not to mention the loss of their vital armaments. Second, he knew that the Union gunboats would soon sweep upriver to Nashville as well. No doubt the army would soon follow behind them. There was no help for it now. Johnson would have to swallow the shame of defeat and retreat alike. But he would, very fortunately, have time to regroup as the Union stopped to occupy Nashville and much of Middle Tennessee. Still, though, being in command when the first Confederate state capital fell to the Union, and Nashville was an important center of commerce and manufacturing, too, well, that was not going to be easy to recover from. The loss did anger many Confederates in Tennessee and even beyond. Uh, It certainly caused his reputation to suffer somewhat. But Jefferson Davis was not deterred from supporting his old friend, and while he had many faults, in this case, I think he was not entirely incorrect in his judgment. In response to one such complaint, Davis said, If Sidney Johnson is not a general, the Confederacy has none to give you. Still, though, General Albert Sidney Johnson was going to have to try something bold, daring, perhaps even mad, in order to reclaim his reputation. Perhaps he just might find a way. This has been the American Civil War Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.